People My Dog Would Like, where I get to speak with interesting people about their game-changing ideas, fresh initiatives, and out-of-the-box movements with an eye on the future. Today, my guest is Dr. David Chong, an incredible plastic surgeon working at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, bringing hope and joy to his patients and their families' lives through his remarkable talent as a surgeon. David is also a volunteer working globally for the Mercy Ships organisation that has operated hospital ships in developing nations since 1978, bringing hope and healing to the forgotten poor by mobilising people and resources worldwide, serving all people without regard for race, gender or religion. I was especially keen to have David talk about the work he does with the team at the Mercy Ships and where it's taken him in the last few years. Thanks so much for taking the time out to be a guest on the show. It's taken a while, but I finally nabbed a spot in your incredibly busy schedule. So to start with, David, tell me a little bit more about yourself and where you came from. Well, Lizzie, uh, it's really lovely to be part of the program and uh, it's, uh, it's especially nice given our shared background in Western Australia. And um, I was born in Malaysia and was fortunate enough to come to Australia at a young age of five and very happy that mum picked Perth and through Perth have made... Uh, such a strong sense of um, community and friendships through growing up in that city. There was a, probably a period of time in my life, a short period, but a not too pleasant one at about 13 when I realised that I was different um, in terms of the way that I looked facially um, and racially compared to most kids who grew up in um, Sea Beach. And as I said, 99% of people were so kind to me, but there was just the odd skirmish that I had um, whereby I felt very judged for something that I felt I had no control over, you know. And there probably were times which it was quite daunting to be um, vilified and not know how to change or or do anything to alleviate that this um, poison that you felt was being spat at you. And But through that, every cloud is a silver lining and it gave me an empathy for people who were born with facial differences and it's amazing to me the face that so much of what we have is not deserved it's just who our mum and dad were and and because of that and we get born with a face a certain way and and yet when we meet each other we judge each other so much on the way that we look and so what's it like to be able to change that for someone who was born facially different so it all sort of made my life make sense that it I slowly gravitated towards doing more and more on the face. So when you were 13, I mean, you mentioned 13. Yeah. I, I imagine something may have happened yeah. that triggered this feeling of, wow, I'm not like the rest of you. Yeah. Look, I had such a happy childhood in primary school and then I think it was going into year eight where just for a couple of weeks there were just a couple of guys who I felt were my friends and it was um, – they just started calling me racially charged names all of a sudden, you know, mm. and it uh, it just seemed like it was my turn to to wear it, and I had to wear it, and um, you know, I justify it sometimes in my own head that you know whether you know Australia's like that, you know, whether you're the fat kid 
you're the fat kid, if you're the guy the big nose, you were Gonzo. You know, if there was always something that um, that we we playfully laugh and pick on each Denigrate. other. Denigrate, yeah. yeah, and it's in humour. But but for these couple of weeks, it wasn't humour. It was it was pretty. Um, it was different to the way to the way you'd engage with them previously. Yeah, absolutely different. Absolutely, and it was. Um, it felt like they really had it in for me. And uh, and it's also that coming of age thing, you know. You're 13, and you just wanted to blend in and fit in with everyone else. And it just felt like I couldn't escape it at that period of time, you know. And and it just shows also how much important it really it really instilled in me how important it is to have people around you who care for you and love you um, through periods of bullying, you know. And also those formative years of um, especially between. 12 and 15, and I'm, I'm able to harness those experiences a great deal when I talk to my patients in the hospital now, you know. Yeah. Um, a lot of them in that same age group who are struggling with their identity or struggling with the way that they look, and, and they know that I get it because I look them dead in the eye and I tell them I know how you feel. And, yeah. and, 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 I, and I feel them know that I know how they feel because of the empathy that I have because of my own brief experience. Mm. Um, and I think in life we can choose to either make people feel like we were made to feel or we can choose to make people never feel how we were made to feel. You know, it's always interests me that victims of child abuse either sometimes go on to abuse other children mm. when they get older or they turn around and become advocates that that should never happen to me and i think whenever something bad happens to us i think you do make that choice yeah it's a um, it's a it's a forked path it's a forked path, path. It? it is and um and i think i was fortunate in some ways that my forked path brought me into this field of surgery it's also i mean did you always want to be a doctor when you were yeah. in high school did you think i want to make a difference and the medicine is my calling you know to be honest i think it was more i had a Tiger mum, a Chinese yeah. tiger mum, okay. who pretty much stereotypically <laughs> said to me, that's what I was going to do. standard story. Yeah, the standard story. I am that standard story. And, uh, Physics. Exactly. Absolutely. No beach. <laughs> no, no, uh, no hanging out after school, straight home. Yeah. Um, do your study. Do your study. And, Wash the car. And in a lot of ways, she's probably responsible to for me still trying to live out my childhood now, you know, <laughs> yeah. people say that I'm a Peter Pan and, and I realise that I am in a lot of ways because I just, I feel like I'm living out those lost years where I never had control over my life. I'm very grateful that I've got to a place where I've uh, found relative um, success in doing something I love to do, mm. but um, it certainly came at the cost of not being able to do things Not having a huge do. amount of fun as a teenager. No, no yeah. that's right. Well, I hope you're reaping the rewards of it yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, listen, you talk about the – I mean, I've seen the incredible work you're doing providing the skills you've got mm. with these underprivileged communities in Africa. Can you tell me a little bit about the Mercy Ships organisation because they aren't just in Africa, are they, and no. how you got involved? Well, I think I was exposed to it when I was 27. Um, I was a young doctor and I just got my surgical exam and – I always had that wanderlust and that wanderlust probably stemmed from me, as I said, feeling like I missed out. And uh, so I always loved traveling and, uh, and and still do. And so... That's that, a Perth thing too. Yeah, it is a very Perth Very thing. isolated, got to get out of exactly. here. Exactly. 
And that year, I took a year off and I went travelling. And part of that, I spent six months on the ship. Um, and it really had a profound impact on me. Um, I had a Christian upbringing and um, very, very Christian upbringing. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's the first time it made Christianity make sense to me. You know, here were people who were actually doing something about it, not just talking about it. And and the Mercy Ships is a Christian ship. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Okay, yeah, obviously the word mercy, but I thought yeah, no, mercy can be. Yeah. It used to be affiliated with a group called Youth of the Mission. Yeah, um, and it is mission based. Um, but what I like about it, they weren't shoving the you know good news down Theology. people's throat. Yeah, it yeah. was kind of like, well, we're here just to love you, um, provide you free surgery, and the whole servanthood um, way in which the ship is there to serve. It's not there to, to talk about anything or there to. Um, to lord over anyone, which is so classically for me, you know, the old days of what a mission or missionary did. These guys are here just to say, hey, we're here just because Jesus Christ told us to look after people who are poor and forgotten. Mm. Um, The guy who had a huge impact on me, a guy called Gary Parker, who has spent the last, you know, 30 years of his life on this ship. Wow. Earning nothing, you know. Turned away, you know, a million bucks a year working in Los Angeles to live on this ship and just serve the poorest people, the forgotten. And I suppose. Who is this guy? Yeah, he's amazing. He's a modern day saint. I love working with him. He's American. Yeah, okay. Um, And um, I love going to spend time with him whenever I'm in his company. I just, you know, I just feel like he's a humble, very humble, gifted man who, who serves, who just serves with his heart, you know, he just he does what he felt like God's told him to, whoever you regard as God or whatever you decide. He's just decided that his God has told him his calling. to help the poorest people in the world, the forgotten people, and that's what he's doing. And he has got he's he's garnered so much experience in some of the biggest surgeries that you'll ever see. Mm. He's become an expert in because in our countries you cut out some of these tumors when they're the size of a pea. I've seen but, some yeah, of the size some, of the tumors. But over there, yeah, they get, you know, it's the benign tumors. Oh, absolutely. It's a second head yeah. growing out of their jaw. And, and yeah, these people come yeah. in desperate because these benign tumors are the ones that are that lead to an awful death. You know, a malignant tumor will spread to a part of your body and take you. Very but a benign quickly. tumor slowly, slowly grows to the point where by ultimately you slowly can't eat, slowly can't drink and slowly eventually suffocate. So you see these people come in with these massive tumours. They don't have a hope of getting these things off, you know, Mm. not a hope. And you see it in their eyes. They just, they have these hopeless eyes of, you know, they're just waiting for the inevitable basically. And literally this guy is committed to helping these people, you know. So it's um, it's he the founder. Was he? Oh, he's who, one who, of the founders. Who started it? Well, it started with the Youth of the Mission. Okay. A group called YWAM. But they've now broken off on, on their own. They, now they're called the Mercy Ships. And they're building a second ship, which is almost as, twice as big as this ship, um, currently being built. And will be two of these ships now sailing around. <coughs> I really like their model because they're, they um, – they basically bring the whole infrastructure into a port. Yes. So, you know, so you basically have a first world, world hospital um, with all the blood tests, CT, scan, X-rays, ICU, and it moors itself into the port and mm. all of a sudden this whole country can benefit. 
What about if you're landlocked, though? That was what I thought. I thought, you know, you've got some of these large continents, particularly Africa. Do some of the landlocked countries get a look in? No, well, it depends on the politics of the country that they're visiting. You know, sometimes they'll allow, but usually these countries are so desperate to get their own treated. And so, you know, the, the model works. Is so high. The demand works for these poorer countries that have access to water, sea, or ocean, yeah, yeah. Um, but not for the ones that are inland. Um, but so a second ship's being built. Second ship's being built. But so yeah. how much time? I mean, I noticed last year, like I was just looking at your, last year I saw, August, oh, this year, August, I've seen you're at Bukit Baru in Malaysia. Mm. July, I saw you're in Quito, Ecuador. April, I saw you're in Morocco. Yeah. May last year, in Cochinou, Benin. Is this all Mercy Ship? No. So the second group I do work with is a group called Operation Smile. Okay. Operation Smile is much more focused on cleft lip and palate, which is probably my big passion in terms of what I do a lot of here. And the and Smile is different because we're only going in for two weeks increasingly working with local surgeons um, yeah, okay. to upskill them and get them better at doing cleft lip and palate. Um, but there's no way we could do some of those big surgeries um, on a cleft mission. You know, you wouldn't do it. Um, increasingly these, I mean, missions are uh, such an old word. It's just I use it out of habit more than anything. But mm. these missions, we will go in and we'll work with the local people to look after their own. Um, that's the name of the game. I think we've really changed our paradigm of us going in and doing, you know, 100 clefts and leaving, you know. Teach a man to fish, yeah, don't exactly. give him fish. Exactly. So, and that's been very rewarding. I've formed some particularly strong relationships, especially with Moroccan and Ecuadorian surgeons, and so I'm sort of finding myself going back to certain countries more. Although I've done probably about 26 missions now. Wow. Um, yeah, okay. over the course. I started in 2005, so the last 10 years. Yeah, and I like, as I said, it's sort of a two birds of a stone. I love um, cliff stuff and also love travelling. So, mm. I, And I'm fortunate that the Children's Hospital has been very supportive. In and flexible. I and wondered flexible. how that worked because clearly you're a bit yeah. of an anchor here yeah. for plastics, for cliff, lip and what have you. Yeah, they've been But very you obviously good. take off. Yeah, they've been very good. And I've had patients who have been very understanding that I've been gone for periods of time. Mm. Um, but I'm probably going for no longer than a month at a time these days and I, I'm just committing probably about three months a year to um, to volunteer stuff. And of the experiences that you've had in the last 10 years, mm. do any stand out as more memorable than others to you that have really touched you? Look, I think um, there's a couple of things. I think it's not necessarily the patients themselves. I mean, of course... There are so many special, wonderful patients, but it's that feeling that we all have, all of us who have passions, when you kind of discover something that you think you've been put on the planet to do, you know, and that's probably the feeling that I most love to capture. I think when I come home and I get, you know, caught up with all the little things that, well, not little, but things that just take up your time, you know, whether it's paying your rates or you know, working out what time to go and see this or not all good things but just things that aren't probably that important to what you feel Mm. your life's about. And then when I go in these places and I realise that I've been able to help someone who had no access to help um, and to be part of an organisation that's able to bring hope 
to to someone who's hopeless. Um, that's a that's a very special feeling. And there's a few times in my life where I've just, I suppose, had spiritual moments where I've just sat, just gone, you know, wherever I'm at, I've had a moment where I've connected with myself and connected with with some sort of belief that it's not all about how much money I'm going to make or how many houses that I'm going to have or, you know, but it's about human connection and it's all Mm. about. And I think that to me gives the world some hope, you know, when you're around other people who sort of feel the same way. um, It sort of brings, it grounds me and it gives me energy and um, helps me to change my perspective because sometimes when I come home, I, it's hard to know which one's the true reality, you know. Is yeah. the reality looking after self, doing the stuff that you need to do, or is this reality helping? And somewhere, obviously, I think is the medium. Is the balance, yeah. exactly. I yeah. mean, I, I watched a film clip of you and I was really touched by uh, something that you said in it and it kind of connects a little bit of what you're saying now with how you felt when you were growing up and that was you know, when you look back on those tough times when you Mm. were growing up, you said, when I have a part in healing these kids somehow, I'm actually healing myself. And you say you have, sometimes you have these moments where you think, wow. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's part of, I suppose, the message I have for myself is that, you know, I was so used to having to be, to show a side of myself that was perfect and that was good and that was, everything was fine, everything was but, you know, sometimes things just aren't. And and it's, you know, Brene Brown talks about a lot now, you know, vulnerability, but also the fact that, you know, you know to get to where I was, I failed. You know, I almost got kicked out of medicine. Um, I was going to ask yeah. you, like, I yeah. don't, I, and we talked about yeah. it, I don't think I've ever seen you yeah. in a situation where you're not smiling. Yeah, yeah. So you have had some tough times. Oh, have you? yeah, So absolutely. how did you nearly get kicked out? Well, I just was just, I was 16 going on 17 when I got into med school. So yeah, you I was, were, yeah, I was did, a year. I skipped you, a year. I was this, part of the thing. Is this Emma? Is this how Emma? Yeah, that's Emma so exactly. This is an old exactly. friend, people. So yeah. yeah, so you went. You're a year ahead. Yeah. Kind of vertical curriculum, they call yep. it now, where yep. you where you kind Advance, of advance yep. you, and then straight into uni. Training uni, and I was 16, not used used to having to ask permission to to leave the house, and the answer was usually no. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm in a university where I can drink beer. Yeah. Um, even though I looked even younger than 16. But in those days, no one asked for ID. No. Never at uni. You Never drink, in you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, I just got really wayward. Um, and, you know, I almost got kicked out in third year. First year, I got a supplementary. Um, second year, I got a warning viva just because I was mucking around too much. And third year, I got three subs. And um, and then I ended up a whisker from being thrown out of med school. And what happened to saved, you turn things around? When I was saved by a few people went into bat for me, and um, I went up to those two people um, when I finished med school. I actually got intern of the year. When I got intern wow. of the year, I went back and really thanked those two people for showing faith in me. And that's why I'm a big believer in you know second chances. I I'm sort of like. Jeez, if I hadn't got that second chance, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. But then it fills me with even more gratitude that I'm able to do what I do now. And as I said, I think that's what happens, you know, when you have a lot of positive things happen in your life. It just, gratitude, I think, is one of the 
greatest weapons we have against life. You know, yeah, that's right. Whatever gets thrown your way. You know, my dad, who had a big influence in my life, not from the usual point of view, just because he was so sick. You know, he, oh, he had right. cancer, um, I didn't and he know was that. yeah, he was blind from the age of well, imagine when I was about ten. Wow! Uh, lost ninety five percent of his sight due to radiation treatment. <gasps> but he had a, he had a miraculous healing despite all of that. He survived cancer. He was meant to be he was meant to die within a year, and he ended up living for another um, ten. Wow! And um, he he said to he said to my mum one day, "How can you um, you know?" How can you cry about having no shoes when you see someone with no feet? You know, so he was always about gratitude. That's one of the things he, yeah. he taught me that despite how bad your circumstances might Life seem, is relative. Yeah, and also that there is always something to be thankful for. Yeah, um, and and that's what I think my smile is about. It's probably at times a defence, and at time, but ninety percent of the times, it's a genuine. Feeling. I don't even. When people say I'm smiling, I actually don't even know that I am. I think it's a habit. Yeah, it's probably a habit. <laughs> I'm probably just pretty happy to have got through everything. And um, yeah, um, I had no idea. Know. I just you come across as someone that's just mm. haven't had many failures. Yeah, no, I've had definitely more than my fair share, and um, I'm very grateful for the people who've got me through. In fact, when I had the chance to open up um, one of the halls at Shenton College, which was um, What's my school, Swanbourne High School, and, yeah. and Hollywood merged. Yeah, you know that's what I. Did. I just I, I spoke to my thirteen-year-old version of me sitting out in the audience somewhere, and just talked to him and just sort of said, "Hey, you know, you're going to fail a lot in the next couple of years, but don't worry, it's, it's okay. okay. It's okay. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to you just learn from it. Don't beat yourself up. Learn from it. Move on." Um, and, uh, and that's what I've tried to do in my life, I suppose. But m- more and more out in the open. I think I used to make mistakes or, or think that I was a failure and just keep it all yeah, secret. Don't let or anyone, don't let anyone know else about know. that but happening. You, need, you don't need to tell the world, but I think you need a few people around you that you can talk to. You know? I think there's a real strength as well in allowing yourself to be fully authentic. Yeah, I agree. Not just semi-authentic. 100%. You know, where everything's nice and glossy and you're, great you're word. looking pretty good, but at the it's end of the day, word. everyone's got issues. Everyone needs to be able to communicate. Everyone's had those failures you talk about. Maybe not at med school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, listen, I was also quite keen to talk about some of the new technology or some of the new... So the ecosystem, I guess, that we have in Australia, but potentially globally as well, in relation to plastic surgery, medicine, how the field of medicine is being disrupted and what are some of the technologies out there that you are really interested in and what are, what are some of the, I guess, trends that you're seeing that uh, we're talking about? I think a couple of things. Um, probably the biggest There thing, might be some challenges too. I mean, with disruption yeah. comes a lot of challenge. Yeah. So. Well, I think um, the, our use of fat has really changed in the time since I've been a plastic surgeon. You know, we used to harvest fat, inject fat in places where we never used to do it because we think the fat would die, you'd introduce infection. But now they're doing all sorts of things to fat and to blood and spinning it down and spinning down to, to, to create what they think are growth factors and stem cells and yeah. injecting them in and watching cartilage regrow and 
you know, that's that's pretty amazing stuff. I mean, certainly something that's happened in my lifetime that I've gone watch this space, you know. And do you watch, happen? I mean, are you, are you aware of um, laboratories doing work on skin, regrowing? Yeah, look, I'm not, that, I mean, Western Australia, Fiona Wood has been growing skin for a while, but um, I don't know if they've made as many advances with that, you know, in terms of making skin that, you know, looks bioengineered like normal skin. Yeah. But I think that ability to actually recreate things from the stem cells, that is, that's pretty big. Big, big stuff. I think that uh, in terms of, you know, your ability, for instance, to, to grow a kidney, to make a kidney and in a, in, a, in a petri dish and then make it have its own blood supply and then from the patient's own cells. I mean, once upon a time that would be no way would you think that would have been possible. Mm. But we're finding our way into, you know, stem cells and the possibilities of this may occur, you know. I often think what's going to come first. Is it going to be this organ generation through stem cell research or or perhaps will it be genetic intervention that we talk about now? I know there's there's a lot of uh, work to do around the ethics of genetic intervention, but I, you can guarantee that there's going to be intervention. Mm-hmm. So it's about how that's going to be directed. And I think will there be, is it more likely that there'll be genetic intervention to stop people having the you know, organ issues that they've got or the physical issues that they've got or will it be once they've got it, oh, we can create a new organ for them? Well, I think that we're probably a long way off, a longer way off being able to operate on a gene. Okay. So even if you work out that a gene is, because at the moment there's an explosion in the amount of research on what genes are responsible for what illness, mm. right, or, or that, and so that's what a combination. What combination. And well, that's the scary thing is gen- genetic mapping becomes better and better. You know, a baby might get a genetic test. And, you know, I remember watching this on a movie and how, you know, the future becomes reality. You know, like right now, absolutely, you might be able to predict the chances of a, of a baby getting whatever sort of illnesses. And is that going to affect who, what the insurance company is going to do to insure that child? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, at what point are we going to not only know what gene is responsible, but it's how to fix that gene? Now, I'm sure that will be in the future, but I think that that's a long way away. But it's certainly not an area of expertise for me. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't know, but I would think that that's a long way away. But so too is growing a kidney in a in a dish and also finding. Uh, but at the moment, you know, a lot of these things are things that I read about just as much as you read about and go. Mm. Holy moly, you know, I'm a little bit closer to some of it in the plastic surgery field, but, you know, a lot of my friends were involved in this sort of research. You know, a friend of mine who was growing, he grew a heart that could actually beat. What? You know, in a Petri dish, which was a That's incredible. thing, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I guess as well, I mean, it's not just technology though, is it? It's about approaches. Yeah. Are you finding that? there's a different approach to the way uh, you're doing your plastics work or that uh, your associates are collaborating? I think the big difference for me is more the fact that important medical discoveries now are all sort of being turned into business. You know, like when penicillin was discovered, it was for the greater good of man. Yeah. Now it just seems like any sort of little discovery gets made, gets commercialised, gets commercialised, gets put put off into a little company, and that company gets floated. And you know, it's it's sort of like it's much more. 
Are you feeling a bit jaded? Oh, not jaded, just more um, concerned about the future of healthcare. And, and, you know, I think we're relatively lucky in Australia, but because of that, the cost will escalate, you know. It just has to. And know, I talked will, about that with yeah. you. How do you address escalating costs yeah. with a smaller band of taxpayers? Yeah, and at some stage, How does the that recognition work? that at what point do you say, where does the government draw the line and say, you know, you can't have access to this life-changing and life-saving. Who is more worthy? Yeah, exactly. Those decisions look like they will have to be made eventually, though. Yeah, exactly. And especially if, you know, all these discoveries made for the, are not made necessarily for the greater good of man but for financial gain. So, so a, a company wants to get paid for the amount of research and time they put into this drug, even though it costs them a dollar to make. They won't, for argument's sake, $100, you know, because yeah. the other... 88 drugs that they developed didn't come to anything. And at what point are these finances, you know, going to change? You know, the government can't afford to continue to pay this without these costs ballooning. So, you know, I'm glad I'm not in that position where I have to make those sort of decisions, but it boggles my mind when I think about it Mm. um, and when I'm exposed to that sort of stuff. What are some of the challenges that you feel you faced in your field of work with the speed of, Medicine. I think mine's probably more the fact it's not at that same cutting edge. It's I still have a pretty romantic notion of medicine in that I get to treat one child at a time and be a part of their family, which I love. Um, and also the fact that for that two to three hours of operating, I've left a mark on that child for his life. Mm. You know, and somehow that family will always be a part of my psyche and eye of theirs you know whether they remember my name or not that's not so much but it's just that interaction that moment in time when something positive happened for me as well as for them you know so it's very I like that Um, I suppose the biggest thing that would probably impact it is more the fact that in in my time antenatal ultrasound picks up these kids yeah Um, and so I think there is a drop-off in the number of these kids being born because of being picked up and I can understand either way. I'm As in picked up and then potentially terminated correct. because they think it's too complicated? or Sometimes too complicated. Sometimes though they can't be guaranteed that the rest of the baby is going to be normal. It's a really hot and difficult topic. Yeah. I used to have to counsel these parents before they made the decision, <laughs> but that doesn't happen anymore. Wow. Um, and, um, but there's no doubt that I think it has an impact. Mm. on the number of kids that get born with this condition. So that's probably where I see it more than anything, that, you know, technology has allowed us to to pick up these kids early in, in their development. And, and, and take whatever op- options that they have at their disposal. Correct. Okay. So, listen, you know, we talked a little bit before about uh, the work you've been doing and who inspires you. Who Who are some of the people that have inspired you? And... How important for you has it been to have mentors in your in your field or in your life while you've been progressing in your career? I think extremely important. I have a lot of people to be thankful for that influenced me, especially in Western Australia. And you know, a few at the top of my head, a guy called Gordon Baron Hay, who pediatric surgeon, who just he was just childlike, and he he made me see that. You could be a, f- a fun-loving guy and enjoy life 
and still be a surgeon because up to that point in time, the stereotype was these guys who were quite opinionated and serious and also, but Karen and his laugh, they would echo through the Princess Margaret Hospital and I used to love um, working with him and he's the first guy who really made me go, geez, it could be fun to be a surgeon, you know. Yeah, okay. Um, a lot of it's serendipity, you know. I always wanted to do paediatrics. That's what I thought I wanted to be, a paediatrician. And um, the year that I was meant to go to Princess Margaret from Royal Perth, I got asked to do a job in surgery, cardiothoracic surgery. And at first I didn't really want to do it because I had no interest in surgery, but medical admin sort of begged me and I went, yeah, no worries. So I turned up and for a term and not only was there no intern, there was no registrar. Oh. So all of a sudden I was going to the operating theatre and that's when I started picking up instruments and going, oh, geez, this is actually pretty fun and it's really good to be task-focused and my job was to take out the vein in a leg. Yeah, this is like yeah, a train. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and nobody can bother me tools. here. I know, I'm in here and I get this vein out and I hand the vein up to the surgeon and he puts some fluid in the vein and everything doesn't leak he gives me a thumbs up you know <laughs> i'm like uh, this is great and and two men there mark edwards and uh, robert lavalestia two wonderful cardiac surgeons who encouraged me to become a surgeon when i really didn't want to be you know i, I didn't they saw something obviously in me that i didn't see um and had a profound influence in 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 steering me into surgery and, yeah, those three men, I, I was very grateful for early, early in my career. Yeah, um, I mean, I often wonder about, I guess in some ways, the lack of mentoring organisations in countries like Australia. I think mm. people talk about mentors in their life and the desire for them. And I actually think with the, ima- with the amount of marriage breakdowns these days and the impact that has on children and you know, extended families, that it's a, it's a, it's a huge need. Absolutely. Organisations, whether they're professionals, whether they're from sporting codes or what have you, it would be wonderful to think that it was almost like conscription, that people had to mentor the younger generation. You know, you had to do a number of community hours per year to mentor and to give back. Well, I think it also stems from a connection. I think if you try and force people together, and they don't have that connection, that that mentorship doesn't necessarily work. I mean, you need a mentor who's willing to give of themselves, but I think you also need that connection that makes it easy for that to reciprocate, for both of you to reciprocate some sort of energy. There's no doubt that at that stage in life, to be a mentor is a very selfless thing to do, I think. You know, there's no reason why those guys... There was nothing to gain by encouraging me or by motivating me or by telling, you know, steering me towards something except for the fact that they saw something in me that they wanted to encourage. And, you know, I'm very moved when I, at this point in my life, to look back at it, to sort of go, you know, wow, you guys made such a positive impact in my life and walked away, not walked away, but but didn't expect anything back. It wasn't like, oh, geez, we got you into this place. Now it's payback time. you got to do, you know what I mean? It yeah. was just like, hey, selfless. there you go. It was very selfless. And I think that's true mentorship, isn't it? When, when you're just giving of yourself to someone younger than you because you see something in them, because you want to encourage them. 
mm. and expecting nothing back. Yeah, unconditional. It's unconditional. Um, Are you feeling that you've, you're in a position to be giving back now? No, it's a good I mean, question. obviously, yeah. the work that you're doing with the Mercy Ships and the colleagues you've got in Ecuador and perhaps Morocco, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think I am. But I think talking to you has challenged me to probably do it um, locally at a, at a more um, personal level because at the moment when I go away, it's, you know, I think if you're going to be community focused, you want to find someone within your community that you can mentor. Yeah. Um, and it's very easy or relatively easy for me to connect with people on a relatively superficial basis, but mentorship takes commitment and vulnerability. Yeah, and it spans years. Yeah. So, you know, who in your life are your, who are your real life heroes? Well, I think without doubt, this guy, Dr. Gary Parker, is one of them. You know, he immediately springs to mind because he lives life to the beat of a different drum. Yeah. And I'm just amazed at how he does it. He sees something that makes life make sense to me, you know, and being around him, gives me a lot of peace mm. and you know I've asked him once you know what are you going to do if you don't have enough money to live out your life because everyone's always talking about how much money you need to retire how much money and he just said to me David if I'm sitting on my chair rocking back and forth and I've done what I feel God has told me to do then I'm a happy man and I'll eat what's in front of me and um, I just had just the way he said it, I knew you were serious I was just like so simple. So simple and so like this is, you know, this is what I feel I'm supposed to be doing and I'll keep doing it until something stops me. Um, and for me to go off and do my special specialist and come back and see the same guy who inspired me still there, still doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, keeps me going back. Yeah. You know, um, you know people say to me, oh, wow, you, you volunteer a lot. Well, it's all relative, isn't it? It's yeah. Like, I mean, relative to, to someone who's given up 30 years of his life doing the same thing. There's such a difference between the work that you're doing at the in Melbourne mm. in an advanced city and the work that you do there. What's it feel like when you come back? Well, I think it, you know, it fills me with gratitude in terms of just having running water. I mean, running water is such an unbelievable thing. When you've been to yeah. developing countries and the number of times I just stop, I have this habit of taking a big suck of tap water when I brush my teeth, you know, um, just to rinse and then swallow. And it's got me to so much trouble when I'm travelling because I've got to actually remember I cannot do this yeah. in Africa. I cannot do this in parts yeah. of Asia. I cannot drink the tap water. Um, and to think that the whole population of people cannot drink their tap water. And yeah. to come home and that first you know, spray of water into the glass and it's crystal clear and you take it back and you're just like, oh, what have I got to complain about? Yeah, you know? it puts things um, into perspective. It really does. And, you know, and also just the, you know, the amount of access we have to have what we want. Um, Consumerism. Well, yeah, it's funny, you know, like it always strikes me. I mean, I, I'm actually not an overly religious guy, but in fact, I'm not religious. I would consider myself spiritual, but it always mm. astounds me that the people who believe most in God or or some sort of semblance of spirituality are the people that you think least should believe in God. In other words, these <laughs> people who are poor, who have nothing, and who sit around and just like, 
okay, there really is a God. Wouldn't my life be a little bit better? Yeah. You know, yeah. they're the ones who really believe in God. And those of us here who've got all that we want, all that we could possibly have. And very little to and complain very about. very little to complain about. And we're kind of oblivious to, and, you know, where's, is it because we think we got here without God, so therefore we don't need God? Or, you know, I, I think about that a lot. Um, it's interesting to me. And, and, um, and as I said, for me, it's as much a spiritual journey as anything now to, to sort of understand and, and try and be part of something that's greater and better and, and good for the world. And what, so what are your plans, say, for the next five to ten years? You know, it's a good I'm actually struggling a little bit with the fact that it's, I've never made plans like that, but I kind of feel like I have to now. You know, these next ten years are pretty important. I'd like to have kids for sure. I've never been someone who wanted to make priorities or plans. I've always been enjoyed drifting, you know, and yeah. just seeing where things go. But it's funny to think that, uh, not funny, but it is surreal to think that um, you're in your second half of your life. Yeah. You know, maybe it ends tomorrow, maybe it ends in 30 years. years. Yeah, say 30, 50. Oh, the technologist <laughs> 50. 50, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But whatever it is, you're over halfway. You I'm know? fairly clear, though, yeah. the doctor's not saying 50 yeah. years. Well, I think you've probably got the, the well, data on me. No, well, I think as a doctor, you also see that bad things happen at times when you don't expect. Yeah, so, you see more accidents. Yeah, you see accidents, you see cancer, you see stuff that yeah. every single one of those people never thought that would happen to them. Yeah, you know? that's right. So um, it, it just it just grounds you a little bit. But, you know, whatever it is, whatever time you have left, it, you know, it's changed, it does change your perspective on how you look at life. And uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to these next three months. I kind of feel a little bit of cocoon time and... Uh, and reevaluate and sit and um, have a think about, think about it. it. So, what is it that you, you you come across as happy, mindful, calm? What do you do on a daily basis that you feel contributes to your wellness? You know, I don't feel like I do enough. I uh, I'd like to transfer how I appear down here. You know? <laughs> I've been trying to um, swim more. Yeah. Um, Fine. Uh, swimming teaches me perseverance. I want to feel like I want to stop. Yeah. Um, teaches me to be quiet. Um, teaches me to not have to be doing lots of things at once. Um, and I can usually track how well I'm going by how often I'm swimming during the week, you know. Right. Um, so you are a bit of a swimmer, are you? I never was. I never was a swimmer. Um, but it's something that in my, the last 10 years of my life I've gone, you know, I've always sucked at swimming and I've always wanted to surf well. Yeah. I've never reached that at all. But one of the things that stopped me was my fear of swimming well, you know, ah, um, okay. my breath hold. You know, how, yeah, how yeah. So, so I just decided, right, this is something. So a couple of years ago I just started swimming and uh, you know, it was one of those things that I could like, oh, geez, I've got to put my mind to something, I can do it, you know. Yeah. Um, I know it sounds odd coming from something who did medicine, but... It's something that I'm learning in my in my latter years that there are things that I want to do. And so, you know, I think that also having a – trying to ground myself spiritually and um, what I mean by spiritually is I really do believe, I mean, in the miracle of life. I mean, life is a miracle and I just try and remind myself every day that every, every time I operate on a body from the fact that the kidney is there doing what it's doing through – to the fact that my brain is working the way that it is through to 
the fact that I can pick up that pen, but I want to, you know, through to, um, you know, the fact that um, when I make a cut on some skin, it heals, you know, it's just unbelievable. Wondrous. It's wondrous. And the fact that we're on this planet, which is spinning around with a blue sky, with a sky over that we can't explain. Mm. We don't even know how far that goes. There's so many unknowns, ab- absurdities, unknowns, impossibilities. Um, it's constantly around us. And, mm. and I try not to distract myself from that. Um, I try to tap into that. And, you know, as I said, my life is it, the more that I accept how broken it has been, the easier it is for me to be calm. Yeah, and I get I get a sense from you that the easier it is for you to feel blessed. Yeah, I feel very blessed at the end of the day, and I I feel like that's probably how I've got through a lot of what I've got through, um, and how it just seems natural for me to do what I do now. But of course, you always have a sideways look about what if I've done more cosmetic surgery, what if I'd you know gone and lived here. You know, I've always been that looking around a little bit, but as I get older, I'm kind of just be where you are. Yeah, be more present. Mm. Yeah. And now listen, so you do have one of the most delightful smiles that oh, I catch on the internet. Yeah. My heart warms every yeah. time I see one of your new photos, whether oh, it's from the mercy ships or, you know, you. from Operation Smile. I can't reiterate enough what an incredible role you help with young and old without discrimination and clearly you're just determined to help those who need it most. The results you achieve are spectacular, David, and I look forward to watching your ascent into someone I feel deserves a strong nomination for Australian of the oh, Year. I don't know about that. I think so. I think yeah. I may try and nudge a campaign. <laughs> Chong, I'm going to. But thanks again for coming oh, on the show pleasure. and sharing your work with us today. Yeah, it's great. been fantastic. Thanks, Lizzie. Great to be here. I'm <laughs> sorry.